This is Karin Zissis of ASCOA Online. Thinking back to January 2021, it's safe to say that the U.S. presidential transition did not go smoothly. As the resiliency of democracy in the United States faces a test, what does it mean for U.S. credibility abroad and particularly in Latin America? In this podcast, we get answers from former U.S. Secretary of State Madeleine Albright and former White House Chief of Staff Mac McClarty in a conversation moderated by ASCOA Vice President Eric Farnsworth. If you'd like to watch the video of the full discussion, check the podcast notes for a link. You're listening to Latin America in Focus. Latino America in Foco. America Latina in Foco. A podcast by America Society, Council of the Americas on politics, economics, and culture in the region. Madam Secretary, let's begin our conversation with you. What can you tell us to get us going about the state of democracy globally, and where do we stand as of today? I um, love being uh, here with my very good friend, Mac McClarty, and I thank you for your first question, because it is a very hard time, and I hate to say this, but democracy is not in good shape at the moment. There are a variety of studies and task forces looking at this, and basically what is agreed is that since the beginning of this millennium, the majority of the world is not living in free countries with democracies. And I think that is a very difficult statement for all of us. And part of the issue, and the part that I find very hard to accept, is that the U.S. has not been a great example uh, at the moment, and that has also given us a lot of problems. I would like to say, just so people know about myself, I'm an immigrant. I came to this country when I was 11 years old. My father was a Czechoslovak diplomat, and he didn't want to live under communism. And so we were able to come to the United States. My father defected and got political asylum and went and lived in, in Denver. And I'll never forget what he said is that the American people need to know that democracy is fragile, but it's resilient. And I think we're seeing that in so many ways. I do think we have gone through some interesting eras and um, Mac and I have in common that we worked in the 90s in the White House and in the State Department and I at the United Nations. And with the end of the Cold War, there really was a burgeoning of new democracies. And I think that people felt that uh, this was going to be a permanent growth and the United States was the best example of it, the beacon of democracy. And yet what has been shown is democracy is much harder than we think, uh, that there are always various threats. And I think in the last few years, it has been particularly under threat. And we have to deal with that because it is evident all over the world. And so I think the U.S. is very important. One of the things that President Biden said, that it is the power of our example that needs to be more important than just the example of our power. And so we are at a time where we have to show how democracy is, in fact, resilient, 
that uh, despite some hard times in the last few years, that we understand that compromise is not a four letter word, that it's important to kind of build coalitions and that democracy is not a spectator sport. But I'd written this book called Fascism, A Warning. And when I wrote it, I really did think it was important to give a warning because fascists, it is not an ideology. It is a way for gaining power. And it builds on divisions in society where a leader exacerbates them by aligning himself with one group at the expense of another. And the best quote in the book actually comes from Mussolini, who said, if you pluck a chicken one feather at a time, nobody notices. So there has been a lot of feather plucking all over the world. And we're now basically seeing a pretty bald chicken. Thank you for that and getting us going so well. Mac, uh, to you, you've been a longtime observer practitioner in the Western Hemisphere. What, what are your impressions about where the hemisphere has gone? And uh, what would you advise for some of us who are watching the issues carefully? Eric, building on what you said, let me kind of take a step back. I think history always judges a presidency at leadership, be it in the United States, Latin America, or around the world by the basic standards of peace, security, and prosperity. That is, are we on the right track or the wrong track? Are we making lives better for the people that we're privileged to serve or not? And in that case, I think, unfortunately, Secretary Albright put it forward in very objective, uh, candid terms, that there are some legitimate, serious concerns and issues, both in the region and globally, about the state and sustainability of democracy. You used to have a phrase you often put in speeches that we gave, making democracy work. And that really goes back to the kind of the centerpiece of lifting lives. But I do think Secretary Albright's reference to fragility and resiliency is directly relevant to the new administration and to President Biden. I think we will see and are already seeing a return to uh, really institutional leadership, principled leadership and engagement. So I would just simply conclude to be strong abroad, we've got to first be strong at home. And I think President Biden has made that clear along with Vice President Harris. We're living in unprecedented and challenging times with the coronavirus. We've got to move through that and I hope and pray and believe that we are. But I would also say the other bookend, as Secretary Albright knows so well, in order to stay strong at home, we've got to be engaged abroad. Those are the bookends. And I think that will serve us well in the coming months and years in Latin America. Uh, and I am hopeful in that regard while not minimizing some of the challenges ahead. Both of you have been watching these issues for so long and working on them and leading efforts, uh, but there does seem to be a sense in Latin America and around the world that something's changed, uh, not just in the United States, but broadly. I wonder if you could, uh, Madam Secretary, give us a sense of, from your position, what's changed? Uh, why is it more complicated these days to promote democracy? And how then can the United States do a frankly, a better job in promoting democracy around the world, as Mac indicates, uh, that we really need to be doing. Let me just say that promoting democracy has been one of my life's work. I am chairman of the board of the National Democratic Institute, 
which was an organization started by Ronald Reagan. He had spoken in London and at uh, uh, the parliament, and he'd said that democracies were not real good about explaining themselves vis-a-vis -vis communism. So he came back and he started the Endowment for Democracy. And the truth is that you can't impose democracy on anybody. That's an oxymoron. And so the question is, what are the really the environment that is welcoming to democracy? And it's when people, uh, I have believed always that we're all the same, that we want to be able to make decisions about our own lives. And whether it's first where you live and send your children to school or how you feel about your neighborhood, but ultimately you want to have something to do with how your country is run. And I never like uh, when people say, well, X country um, has no sense of democracy, the people. But I do think you say make democracy work. I have said democracy has to deliver uh, because people want to vote and eat. And so the point is how to have economic situation, which does not divide people, but provides for their livelihood. And then that there are countries that do have governments that are representative that respond to the needs of the people and that there are elections, that there are institutional structures that provide for the rule of law and also make sure that it's clear that corruption is the cancer of democracy. But it's not easy. And I think that we need to recognize that it's not easy. I do think it doesn't matter what part of the world one looks at, but the bottom line is that we have a big challenge in this hemisphere. And I would say I'm not an expert on this hemisphere, but I traveled there a lot in a number of places. And I have to say, I admire what Mac and you have done because our policies towards Latin America are a little bit damned if you do, damned if you don't. If you don't pay any attention, they're rightfully irritated. And if you get too much involved in telling them what to do, they're also irritated. And so it really does take deft diplomacy and it does take what i think we're about to see is a president who has actually been there biden is vice president i think on 16 times he has spoken about the importance of this hemisphere and democracy he understands the problem of immigration but doesn't blame everything on that but i do think that we are in a position now to really look at what the issues are, work with the countries and see what they have to say. Uh, and I do think that having Canada as a partner in this is going to make a difference. But even more, it's a matter of not being, you know, patronizing or uh, uh, deliberately being rude or whatever. Because if you look at the situation in the hemisphere now, in Latin America is that the situation, the, the COVID virus has been particularly damaging there and their economic situation um, is, I think, slightly improving, but not in such great shape. And there are those leaders, demagogic leaders, who like to take advantage of the economic situation and the division. So I think President Biden and his team have his work cut out for them. and. The things that you're doing with the council are just absolutely essential. And I think having the private sector involved with the public sector is also a very important part of this. And Mac, you know, building on what the secretary just said, look, you know, democracy must deliver. 
And the Western Hemisphere is in ferment right now. We've uh, mentioned COVID, economic development, all kinds of interesting things. Give us your sense as a practitioner on these issues. What are some of the things that the United States really should be considering right now to help build out the agenda for the Western Hemisphere in a manner so that the people of the region do sense that democracy is delivering? Well, I think we have to be honest and state really what's clearly before us, and that is COVID-19 has really had a crushing impact on the region, certainly on our country. I mean, it's the similar event of my lifetime in terms of just disrupting life and health and the economy. So we've got to remember we're still in that period and not quite able to move forward in a manner that we would all like. I really think the first step is to truly have a vision, have a plan to engage with the region, recognizing first it is not a monolithic region. Latin America is much like our country here, except only more diverse and and, and more geographically spread. I think that we do have some programs already in place that we need to move forward on. We don't have to pass brand new trade laws and all of that. We need to really mobilize, energize the private sector has a huge role to play here, both ways, supply chains, particularly with China. That is reinforcing of employment here in the United States if it's done correctly. And I think President Biden is very clear eyed in that regard about how to approach that. You've got the department or development finance corporation that has money to lend, put to work. And I think you'll have also cabinet members that will logically naturally be engaged. Uh, I would think the Secretary of Commerce with Governor Raimondo really understands that. Secretary Vilsack in agriculture will have a lot of issues that will intersect. I think you'll have some natural reinforcement at the cabinet level as well in Congress. So there's, there, there's ways here to catalyze and get started and get things moving in the right way. You know, it almost sounds as if you're saying that we have all of the tools already available. We just need to to use them better. And the question would be, how do we then generate some of that enthusiasm from the private sector to view Latin America and the Caribbean in this way uh, so that we see the opportunities there and we aren't always seized by all the obstacles and challenges? Well, you're right. And I do think, and we may not have all the programs we would like, but we certainly have some. But I think from the private sector standpoint that if the leadership beginning in the Oval Office sets a tone about our relationships in the region and then our government engages in that, I think the private sector will follow because I think there's natural opportunities there. But also we've got to recognize we do have competition with China, who is certainly well-funded, with Russia meddling mischievously and, and worse. but. This is a natural friendship ally in Latin America. It's ours to lose. We are fully capable of losing it. Let's not do that. Let's engage and win it. Madam Secretary, let's return to you. You know, you have written and said many times that the United States is the indispensable nation. And I wonder in that context, in the democracy promotion context, if the United States itself is challenged, how do we recapture this? To put it in the vernacular, how do we recapture our mojo on the democracy promotion agenda? If we are indeed the indispensable nation, that's a pretty serious issue, no? 
Well, it's interesting. Actually, our boss is the first one to use the word indispensable nation. I've just said it so often that it became identified with me, but there's nothing about the word that says alone. Mm -hmm. And I think the best way to call talk about it is partnership. Uh, and it's not just us going in and telling everybody what to do all the time. The problem is when we're AWOL, as we have been, because then you were talking about the Russians and the Chinese. It's certainly clear in Latin America in terms of what they've been doing while we've been doing something else. So I think we are going to be welcomed back. However, we have to do it with humility and understanding that we don't have everything exactly right. And the fact that we have gone through problems, I think if you put it on a human scale, it sometimes actually helps if you can identify with those that have had also, you know, you can't say, Everything we've done is perfect. Now we're telling you what to do, that we can say that we have gone through a pretty tough uh, patch ourselves. So I think that can be put forward in, in a uh, impressive and positive way. But the part that I'd like to really get back to is the whole concept of public-private partnerships. I think it may terrify people to think that once you're Secretary of State, you're actually learning something, you're supposed to know it. So what happened was, I got um, invited out to Silicon Valley by John Chambers from Cisco saying, come and tell my people, you know, why the government is important to them. And they said, well, the government can't help us. And I said, that's ridiculous. You need the government to do, uh, you know, market access and deal with regulations. And then I would go somewhere and give a speech and I would learn nothing. And so I decided that what I wanted to do was to meet with the representatives of our corporations that were abroad at a round table. And they could tell me more about what was going on in the country than some of the, the diplomats. And so I came back to the department and I established a prize for an American corporations that were good local citizens. So the important part at this point is as we look on how to deal with the issues, whether it's in Brazil or uh, Colombia or Venezuela, the important part is to have the private sector at the table at the beginning, <clears throat> not to bring them in just when you need to have something paid for, but to kind of have them understand the issues and have them see themselves as locals in that country, and then know that what we are doing is trying to help on developing rule of law and a commercial code and a variety of different aspects. We need to get our ambassadors. I mean, our ambassadors really are the ones that project what America is about and welcome people and try to put those kinds of meetings together where the private sector and the private sector, by the way, is both corporations, but also obviously non-governmental organizations. And that broadens the whole picture and, and provides a way for dealing with actual issues instead of being too kind of theoretical. You know, the entrance of China into the Western Hemisphere is one of the most dramatic, if not the most dramatic uh, shifts in hemispheric uh, relations in this century. And the question is, you know, does this reduce U.S. leverage? Uh, but uh, what would you recommend for the United States to do based on where the scenario is today with Chinese interests and activities? How would you advise the United States to react or not to some of these issues uh, going forward? Madam Secretary, perhaps to you first and then uh, to Mac. Well, I think we do need to explain, and it, it's hard to do when you're there because it sounds like you're kind of 
providing excuses for yourself, but the Chinese have a way of going in and saying, you know, where do you want the road or we'll sell your oil or take your oil. Uh, and then all of a sudden uh, they have a lot of imported, a lot of workers and the country is one is known as in the debt trap. They will have not gotten what they want. I think that the hard part, and I think I have to say it frankly, when we look disorganized and hopeless and don't know what to do in terms of helping other countries solve problems in a humane way, we lose out. And I think we need to um, make clear that we want to involve the population, that uh, we believe that it's important to be able to make a living, not to be told what to do, but to be able to have some choice. But I think the, the initial part of this is not easy. Because, you know, we go somewhere and we say, you've got to have this kind of environmental law or labor regulations. And then the Chinese just say, where do you want this road? So um, we have to figure out how to be more competitive in terms of explaining our value system. I, you know, the Chinese have this belt and road policy. Uh, I've been saying the Chinese must be getting very fat because the belt is larger and larger all the time. I think we do need to make our value system clearer to those people that want to be able to have a life uh, where they can make decisions and be able to show their expertise and their willingness to have a better country. Thank you very much, Mac. To you, shared values and common interests, uh, does that still pertain to the Western Hemisphere? Uh, I think it does if, if we help make that a reality. Frankly, there's no question that the Chinese rise and their engagement around the world, specifically discussing Latin America today, is a significant a paradigm shift from when we were in government in the 90s. And we would be foolish in really sticking our heads in the proverbial sand if we don't recognize that. We are capable, fully capable, of winning this competition. There's a much more of a natural connectivity of shared values, trust, history with the United States than with China. But if we don't show up and compete, pretty obvious what the outcome is going to be. We've got to offer a clear, viable, strong, workable alternative. I don't think it's just about money and investment, but we've got a much better uh, relationship playbook, but we've got to, to, to fully engage. Uh, and if we don't, we will simply not be, be successful over time. And that is not good for the region and it's not good for our country. That goes back to the priorities of the administration and the private sector as well. Well, we don't necessarily want to get into a roll call of countries in the Western Hemisphere, but Mexico is fundamental to the United States uh, activities in the Western Hemisphere. We're aware, of course, of the meeting, the virtual meeting that the two presidents just uh, conducted. I wonder if you would have any thoughts uh, of a general nature uh, of how to promote an effective relationship with Mexico during this uh, current moment? Well, the U.S.-Mexico relationship is a critical one, Eric, just to go right to the heart of the matter. They are a large neighbor on our border. They are a major trading partner. We've got a growing Hispanic population in the United States. We certainly have the issue of immigration. So I think it seemed to me that the first encounter between President Biden and President Lopez Obrador went pretty well. But I think to use a little bit of history here to, to really underscore 
democracy, the rule of law, strengthening of institutions. Uh, I truly believe we not been successful passing the North American Free Trade Agreement, both here, Canada, and in Mexico, that Mexico would not have continued to look outward and build their democracy. I, I, I believe history will judge that. And the institutions within the region, while not as strong as, as we might like, have been pretty remarkably resilient and sturdy in some challenging times in Mexico and more broadly. But I think we've got to, to, to find common ground with Mexico where we can, and frankly, where we don't agree, try to minimize the friction there or disagreements because the relationship is critically important to us and even in many ways more important to the Mexicans. And I think President Lopez Obrador understands that. The, the value of the peso, the interest rates, all of that crucial to Mexico's stability and well-being. Madam Secretary, to the extent you had a comment on Mexico, I uh, would love to, to get that. Well, I do think that it is an essential relationship and um, the Mexican issue is clearly complex in terms of the number of issues. But I also do sense from this uh, initial statement that came out uh, from the virtual meeting that there is a desire to work together and problem solve and not kind of take the the low ground saying, you know, we can't do anything together, but recognizing that there are important issues, uh, but it is a vital relationship, obviously. Absolutely. Madam Secretary, you at one point were America's chief diplomat. Uh, how has the role and practice of diplomacy changed uh, in the modern age with social media? If you were secretary again, uh, how would you employ the tools of the modern age in terms of communication? And to the extent you can wrap that into the democracy promotion agenda, it would be uh, very, very worthwhile, I think. Just to tell you how things changed, when I was secretary of state, I invented something really new which was the telephone conference call. <laughs> and the part that was interesting was then later that um, it took a while for information to come in from the embassies through cable traffic. And in the operations center at the State Department, the people there would be sitting there watching CNN. So technology really has had a huge effect on foreign policy. And one of the hard parts, frankly, uh, which both you and Mac know from uh, experience is, and now information comes in so quickly that you don't have time to think about whether it's true or not, or how you even respond to it. So it really has affected diplomacy in a number of different ways. And I think the hard part generally is trying to figure out how we as any society work with the information that we know not to be true and how you assess it. But the fact that the technology works so fast makes it very hard for the diplomats to be able to really do their job in explaining what is being literally the eyes and ears of your own government. But it has affected it. It will continue to affect it even more, I think, as we try to sort out what the rules are about social media. And also because countries have very different rules about privacy you know, and what you decide you need to take off or on. So this is an ongoing and very uh, complex issue. And it's definitely uh, when, um, uh, as NDI, for instance, we now have a whole technology and democracy um, arm that really looks at how technology and democracy can improve things rather than create echo chambers where people don't know what the information really is 
and then take political action that is inappropriate as a result of it. Yeah, the, the rules have changed. Uh, there's no question about it. Uh, your comments very well made as always. Mac, uh, you know, we talk a lot about uh, an emerging Latin America agenda based on the increasingly recognized uh, Lat Latino uh, voice in the United States, Hispanic voice in the United States. But there does seem to be sometimes a disconnect uh, from some of the domestic issues and some of the foreign policy issues. And the question is, does this portend a greater U.S. interest in Western Hemisphere issues uh, going forward? Is there a, a way to think about these issues, uh, linking them perhaps from the business agenda or, or something else? Eric, I think the point I would make is something you and I have talked about. Madeline spoke, as she always does, eloquently and thoughtfully about it in her opening comments. We're going to have to demonstrate a better ability for us to govern in this country. And that compromise is not a dirty word. And we're going to have to accomplish that if we're going to continue to be in a leadership position in this region and more, more broadly. Let me give the same question to both of you, if I can. You know, Frank Fukuyama wrote uh, about the end of history uh, back a generation or so ago at the end of the Cold War. And many of us have used that sort of phraseology to assume the ultimate uh, ascension of democracy. Uh, but we've obviously uh, had to rethink some of that over the last several years, certainly this century. And I wonder, Madam Secretary, you know, you've written several books on this topic, of course, and and many other uh, things. Uh, you know, what do we have to do to ensure that the end of history is actually democratic? Are we assuming the right assumptions? Uh, or are there things that we have to do to uh, really change course so that when we do get to the end of history, quote unquote, uh, it is a democratic one? Well, first of all, I don't think we'll ever end history. But, um, <laughs> the, the whole point, though, is that we need to understand much more what the basis of democracy is instead of just kind of quoting slogans or, you know, thinking that we know what it is. And I do think that one of the things that has really happened, just to go way back, is that uh, people gave up their individual rights uh, in order to have some protection from a state or a king. It's the social contract. And the bottom line that has happened is it is not being observed properly by either side. There are questions about how much the state could or should do or interfere or uh, how it operates. And then the people, um, many of them are not active participants in making sure that democracy works. And it isn't just the vote. It is understanding what the issues are. But I do think that the economics and the divisions that are taking place we have to understand that we can't all have exactly the same thing, but we can't forget about those who don't have something. I think also we need to understand all of a sudden something that is new. History is based on the nation state. And there are now what we call non-state actors who have a role and we haven't figured out how to deal with them in the international system or uh, regionally. And so there are an awful lot of challenges, but they can't be undertaken only by people that are sitting in, uh, you know, isolated places, but really as a result of discussions with people with whom you disagree. I think there has to be some empathy and kind of figuring out what is needed. Democracy is hard. And as we both have said, it has to deliver and it is not a spectator sport. 
Very well said. And Mac will give you the final word uh, to the extent you care to exercise it. Uh, and in that context, building on what the secretary just said, uh, would there be any um, thoughts about uh, how these issues apply to the Western Hemisphere from your perspective, things that we should carry away from us as this conversation comes to a close? Well, I think uh, Secretary Albright remarks were just you know powerful. What I would say, Eric, is I do think there's a sense of urgency here. I think this is an inflection point in our relationship within the region and more broadly. I think President Biden clearly understands that, as does his key leadership team. This is this is a time to get very serious, focused, sobered, and act. I think, secondly, in terms of, of the challenges and kind of the, the fractured nature we feel, I, I would go a bit to the human spirit and values of freedom and just the natural sense of well-being and relationships with other people and, and love, particularly family and loved ones. What you see in America is a great outpouring of, of acts of kindness, compassion, and competence day in and day out. What we're not seeing is a coherence in terms of our national unity. There's, there's the disconnect in my view. And, and that's what we've got to make our democracy stronger and work better. I still go back to some of the themes, frankly, that were put forward by President Clinton and others of providing opportunity, but also in keeping with Madeline's comments, responsibility from an individual standpoint and a sense of community. Th those are the pillars of our democracy and where it applies to the region. I think if we can demonstrate some of that and get on a much better track here, that will resonate with our friends in the region. And that's what will help catalyze, engage relationships there that we'll have to really build on trust and consistent interface and communication. Uh, what a terrific uh, discussion from two of the leading practitioners on these issues literally around the world today. Thank you to both of you sincerely for joining us. Thank you so much. That was great. Join a privilege, Madeline. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Karen Zissis. This episode was produced by Katie Hopkins. The music in this podcast was recorded at America Society in New York City. Find out more about concerts online at musicoftheamericas.org. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can help us spread the word by writing us a review, giving us five stars, and subscribing at Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.